We are in, still in our series in Colossians, and we are in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, and uh, we're going to read a couple of verses, verses 12, 13, and 14 in your pew Bible, that is 984, and uh, as always, you'll be greatly helped by having a Bible open before you, whether it's yours or the one that's in front of you in the chair. And um, once you find Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, then turn towards the front of your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, page 152 in your pew Bible. So we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. And Colossians chapter 3. I was at somebody's house um, last week. Uh, one of the families or children that come to the tutoring program. And so I was visiting them this past week. And uh, one of the, the young boys that I know had gone to see his dad for the weekend. <clears throat> and so he had come back. And I was asking him about how his weekend was. And his mom said, hey, Jeremiah. Tell him about um, the weekend with your dad at church. And so he said, oh, I went to church with my dad and I went to Sunday school and I knew all the answers. And the teacher was so amazed that I knew all these answers. And I thought, see, that's a home run. That, that, That kind of moment, it doesn't get better than that kind of moment. And so... I say that to say we're here really to learn about what God has to say and to know the answers to stuff, not to make us better um, than other people, but to to make us more aware of God and more aware of ourselves and then better used by God as we go out into the world. So let's stand as we read God's word together. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to God, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he has sworn to your fathers, That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word.
C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. Imagine yourself as a living house. God has come in to rebuild that house. At first, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed to, do, be, do, to, to be done, so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to live in it himself. The process, the process will be long and in parts painful, but that is what we are in for Nothing less. In, in chapter 3 in Colossians, Paul's making a transition in his letter. He's transitioning uh, from understanding the gospel to understanding how the gospel creates life transformation. So that people are who are following after God, who's re, who have received the gospel, now are being changed by the gospel. And Lewis's image is of a house, but Paul's image here is not of a house, but of a wardrobe closet. You see that in verse 8 and in verse 12. So it's as if Paul's saying, imagine yourself as a wardrobe. And, and God's entered that wardrobe closet. And you're not surprised, or you sure shouldn't be surprised, that some of the things that you've been wearing, they need to be discarded. And that when he comes into the wardrobe and he's rearranging your, your, your clothing, he's throwing some things out and then he's bringing in some new garments that you would want to wear. When Christ enters your life, he enters your closet of your habits, your character, your traits, your family patterns, your obsessions, your anxieties, your fears. Uh, we have a familiar pieces of clothing. They're, they're comfortable and he's saying these things have to be hauled away. And we've talked about that. Anger, wrath, malice, sexual immorality, evil desires, covenants, lying. That's just a partial list. But now we're moving to verse 12. And we're not talking about what needs to be taken out. We're talking about what needs to be put on. Verse 12. Put on these new habits. Put on these new character traits. And fortunately, it's this wardrobe. It never goes out of style, never gets dated. You don't have to walk into the closet and say, well, this person, you know, they love the 80s because that's all they have is 80s stuff here. It, these kinds of character traits, these kinds of clothing garments, they never go out of style. They never be, need to be updated. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience and love. So in a sense, we, we've got our shopping cart out today and we're looking at this rack and we're saying, which one of these things need to be added to my closet? And of course, they all do, but you need to maybe look at one or two that God's putting on your heart to examine. But, but before we look at this list, I want you to notice something that's really critically important that you must notice before you start putting things on. And that is 
Paul, I want you to notice in verse 12 how Paul begins by supplying the motive for our trans- transformation. Before he gets to the list, he wants to say, okay, before I get to this list, I want to give you the fuel for your transformation. I want to give you the motive that's going to help you put some new things into your closet. And notice in verse 12, he says, put on, put on then, comma. And then before Paul gives the list of our our new wardrobe, he provides the motive because he knows change is going to be very difficult we have some comfortable habits. We have that shirt that we always like, that pair of pants that fits just right, the dress that makes us look good, that taking those things out of our closet are going to be hard. He knows change is going to be difficult, so he supplies this very powerful motive. We are God's chosen. We are holy or set apart, and we are loved. Keeping these Three things in mind are is the fuel that Paul provides for our change. And, and notice, that's why we, we read Deuteronomy chapter 7. That's exactly what uh, the people of God were in the Old Testament. So Israel, Israel has been called out of Egypt, uh, out of this uh, prison of uh, Pharaoh's uh, slavery. And God's saying, I want you to know you're a holy people. I want you to know that you're chosen. You're a treasured possession. What a great phrase. And, and it's not because you were somehow great because you were the fewest, but I chose you because I loved you. So whether you're the people of God in the Old Testament or you're the people of God in the New Testament or you're the people of God in Wilmington, North Carolina, the people of God are always chosen, holy, they're always chosen, set apart, and loved. And that's really a, a, a way to say that's the good news. That's the gospel. That, that God has chosen us. He set his affection on us. We're a treasured possession. And now we're set apart. We're loved for a specific purpose, a, a, a specific passion of God. Now, now, this is really important to understand. And I think I've already said that one time in this sermon. So, you know, if everything's really important, then nothing's really important. But this is really important. All right. And and I want to try to unpack this. And it may it may you may need two or three times to sort of hear it, to sort of get it in your brain. But you can listen to it again online. You can read it. You can think through it. Be very helpful to have a conversation with somebody. But I want I want us to understand that what Paul is saying here in verse 12, by giving this fuel first, he's saying the gospel is both the fuel for our salvation and it's the fuel for our sanctification. The gospel is the fuel for this salvation moment. I met Christ because Christ met me. That's what we know. But now we have to have transformation. We have to live according to what Christ is saying. And how do we live that way? We don't live on our own. We don't just leave the gospel behind and say, now I've got to figure these things out. No, we take the gospel with us, and it's the fuel for our transformation, or the theological word, our sanctification. So Paul in Colossians, he's speaking to new believers in a church plant in Colossae. Remember, Epaphras had heard the gospel from Paul. He goes back to his hometown. He shares the gospel. And basically, a church is planted. And Paul writes this letter to these new Christians. And I just want you to notice what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, hey, now that you're saved, here's the master list of things you should do and don't do. 
Great. You know the gospel. I'm glad you heard it. I'm glad you received it. Now, let me give you a list of things. Now that you call yourself a Christian, here's the list of things you should do. And here's the list of things you should stop doing. He doesn't say that. But so many Christians live their lives this way. Paul is not here in, in, in chapter 3. He's not trying to give a pep talk. He's not trying to give like an emotional halftime speech so that you would come to church today and you would say, Paul, way to go. Paul Phillips, way to go. I mean, you really charged me up. That was a great sort of halftime speech. That was a, a great pep talk for me to go out and do better. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying do better. He's trying to help you understand how the gospel creates transformation. And so Paul knows we're saved by the gospel and that we grow by applying the gospel to our lives. We're not saved by the gospel and then live by the list. And the reason is because our disobedience as Christians is not caused primarily by a matter of a lack of willpower. I mean, our disobedience as non-Christians is we've just fallen after ourselves. We didn't know God, but now we know God, but we still disobey. What's the main reason for that disobedience? It's not usually just a lack of willpower. So do better is not good enough. The root of our disobedience as Christians is that we still are seeking to control our own lives. I still want to be functionally my own God. And so what I need to hear is not do better. I need to hear, Paul, you still have some repentance to do. And there's a big difference between those two things. And so if repentance is what I need, then I need to understand how to apply the gospel. Now, that's, that said, let me try to give you a couple of concrete examples. Because that can feel like, that's nice, Paul, but I didn't understand that. So let me try to give you a couple of concrete examples. First, anger. Let's say I have a problem with anger and I pray for God to remove my anger or I pray for the willpower to overcome my anger. It's a pretty common prayer. I, I have this problem, whatever it may be. We're just using anger as an example. And you just say, God, just I, I know this is a problem. Can you just remove that from me? Or I know this is a problem. And can you just supply some willpower so I don't get angry anymore? I would say that kind of prayer is sort of a law or list kind of prayer. Anger's on the list of things I don't need to do. I do it, and I need to move it over to the things that I don't, I don't do anymore. The gospel approach, so here's what I want to help you see the difference. The gospel approach helps me say this, or pray this, God can you help me understand why I'm so angry? Not, not God, can you just take it away, which he's willing to do, but he wants to do some self-examination, or you to do some self-examination. He wants to examine your heart. So I, I'm asking this question. I have this problem with anger, and I'm asking God, why am I so angry? See, I have some kind of desire that's morphed into a demand and because I'm not getting what I want, I'm not getting comfort, I'm not getting pleasure, I'm not getting my way, whatever that is, I, I've become angry. And what, what's in the way of my comfort or my demand that's causing me 
to be angry. And when I answer that question, what I've uncovered is a functional God. In other words, I cannot be happy unless this happens in my life this way. And when it happens in my life this way, I'm, I'm Mr. Joyful. But when it doesn't happen in my life this way, I get angry. My desire might be for a good thing has morphed into a demand. I must have it to be ha- happy. And do you see what I'm saying? God's not enough. I've replaced God with another functioning God. And so what I need at that particular point is not to do better. I need the gospel. I need, I need to re-examine the cross. I need the gospel to come in and, and to remind me that I need to repent. I've, I've identified this functional God. I've taken my eyes off Christ. And I hope you see how that addresses the root of the problem with anger rather than just live according to the list. Let me give you another example. It's in the text. Verse 13. If anyone has a complaint against another, what does it say? We must forgive each other, period. Okay, so that's the list. You come in. It's not surprising. You know, the merit badge for Christianity, the big merit badge is forgiveness. I've been forgiven. I've got to forgive. So just that's the list. Do, guys, you've got to do better. I know some of you aren't being very forgiving. And you know forgiveness is on the to-do list. It's like at the top. So go out and do better. And you leave going, he's right. I should be more forgiving. I've got to do better. But see, Paul doesn't end it with a period. He doesn't just say, hey, go be forgiving. What does he say? He uses the gospel. He, he says, forgive as, as the Lord has forgiven you. Do you see how he's applying the gospel? He's saying he's not just living according to the list. He's saying live according to Christ. And when you find yourself having a difficult time being forgiving, and being forgiving is very difficult, he's trying to say, do you understand what's going to work for you to be forgiving? It's not going to be willpower. It's not going to be, I see it on the list. It's going to be the gospel. It's going to be you reflecting back on the massive amount of forgiveness you've been shown by Christ. And despite all of that forget all of your sin, he's forgiving and you're loved, you're chosen, you're a treasured possession. So now when I have to go be forgiving for somebody, what fuels that is not a list. What fuels it is the gospel. Big, big difference between those things. So before we look at the list, before you look at this rack of clothing you should put on, and especially before you help somebody else look at the list, you have to understand how the gospel fuels obedience. Otherwise, you're just going to burden people with here's the list of things that you're supposed to do, and here's the list of things you're not supposed to do. And I'm sure I was a poor receptor of this. But in sort of the culture that I grew up in in church as a as a as a elementary age kid, that's what I thought. I thought to be saved, God's got to do it, and you do it when you come down to the front, and you sing some songs at the end, and one of the times on the last verse you come down, and God does something, and I really didn't doubt that He didn't do something. He did. But then what I felt like, and again, it could have been my poor reception, was, now here's a list. 
Now that you're calling yourself a Christian, here are the things that Christians do. Here are the things that Christians don't do. And, of course, they may be true. I'm not trying to say that the list can't be true. I'm just saying, how do I do it? And it felt like, do better. And I kept thinking, but I can't do better. I don't have any power to do better. I really love my old clothing. I don't want to take it off. And so I have to have some kind of motive that helps me take that off. So many people, just like myself, we live in this tight, revolving door. You give your life to Christ and you try to do better. But you fail and then you have these feelings of condemnation. And so you give your life to Christ again. And people have given their life to Christ thousands of times. Because it feels like it doesn't take. Why? Because I'm not doing better. So I wasn't earnest enough. I didn't have my hands tight enough. I didn't say the right prayer. Somehow it didn't take in my life. And you see, we have some warped sense of what's happening there. And what we're trying to do is understand, yes, you need to understand the Spirit saves you. But it also is what transforms you. It's not about doing better. It's about remembering and applying the gospel to your life with anger or forgiveness or any of these other character traits. I hope, I hope that's helpful. But you've got to talk about it and try to uh, uh, see how it applies to how it, the thing that you're working on. Here's the list, all right? Compassionate heart. So, so Christ is coming in. He's taking some things out, and he's saying, Hey, Paul, here's one, one main piece of clothing you need to make sure you have in your closet. You need to have a compassionate heart. And, and literally it means, in the Greek, the bowels of mercy. So it's, it's in your gut. It's, in, it's deep down. It's, it's, it's sometimes uh, translated as tender mercy. And this tender mercy, is, it's not like a tool that you take out and apply occasionally. It's who you are. It comes out from inside. Does that make sense? It's not something you say, gosh, I need tender mercy. Got tender mercy out. Going to apply tender mercy. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act that comes out of you. It's not something that you just pull out. And one commentary, I love how they said it. It's a constant attitude of the heart which makes you easy to live with. So maybe that's a good gauge. Are you easy to live with? Let me give an example using the text. Chapter 3, verse 19 and 21. You're a 48-year-old married man. You have two teenagers. You're not easy to live with. Why? Because in verse 19, you're harsh with your wife. And that harshness means that you're bitter or that your words are piercing. And so what spills out of you, what comes naturally out of you is not tender mercy. It's not compassion, but it's piercing words. And your piercing words as a harsh man are crushing the soul of your wife. Coupled with that, verse 21, you provoke your children. You provoke your children to anger so that when you enter a conversation, whether it's when you come home or something arises in your home and you as the the man start entering that conversation, what happens is your conversation stirs up anger. 
And that stirring up anger causes your kids to be discouraged. So you've got a, a wife who's, who your words are piercing her soul. You're harsh, you're bitter with her, and then you transfer that to your kids, not surprisingly. And, and when you enter the conversation, it's stirring up anger, and your kids are discouraged. That's your home life. So if that's you, what you don't need to hear from me this morning is you got to do better. Do you see? That's not going to be strong enough. You know you should do better. The question is, what's fueling, what's going to fuel that doing better? And I would say you must have a reattachment to the gospel. If you're a harsh, uh, uh, not, not tender, word piercing, stirring up anger, 48 year old man, you've got to go back to the cross. You've got to see that you have genuinely sinned against the Lord millions of times. It's so many you couldn't possibly make up for it. But instead of him being harsh to you, you've gotten compassion. Instead of him piercing you, you've got encouraged. Instead of him being angry, he's been loving to you. And once that gets into your soul, when you step into those difficult situations in your family, tender mercy is going to come out. But if I just say, hey, guys, men, you got to do better, that's not enough. You've got to apply the gospel to that hard heart. And maybe you don't know the gospel. You've got to understand yourself and your relationship with God. And once that comes into focus, then you can go be forgiving. Then you can go have a tender heart. Then you can be compassionate. Gentleness or kindness, that's the second piece of clothing we're looking at here it's a key piece especially if you're in church leadership helpful for everybody but specifically mentioned in church leadership timothy paul says this to timothy in second timothy chapter two the lord's servant says the leader paul to timothy must not quarrel instead he must be kind to everyone able to teach those who oppose him, so that the leader is going to be in the church, he is going to be opposed. How do you act at that point? Well, Paul says he must gently instruct. So this is a character quality of everybody, specifically a character quality of a church leader. In the list, First Timothy chapter 3, character qualities for an elder. An elder must be self-controlled, hospitable, able to teach, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. So I know you can't see these verses, but if you could see them up on the screen, what you would see is uh, they, they, in both cases, they must be able to teach. In other words, they've got to have some kind of biblical IQ. So when people come and ask questions about the gospel, they ask questions about themselves, they ask questions about Jesus or God, you have some ability to teach them what the Bible says. But it's not just a high biblical IQ. You have to have what I call a high EQ. You have to be emotionally mature. You can't be quarrelsome. You can't be somebody in church leadership who stirs up anger when people come and are provoking or opposed to you. If you've ever been in any kind of leadership position and you don't have to, 
You don't, this, this doesn't have to just be applied to the church. You know that what creates so many leadership problems in a group is not that you don't have enough smart people in the room. That's very rarely the problem. It's that in the room you don't have enough emotionally mature people. And somebody goes off. And now you have two problems. The problem you started with and the problem with this person who can't control their temper. This happens all the time in a marriage, but it happens in any kind of leadership structure. So Paul's saying, hey, what needs to be part of your makeup is a kindness, is a gentleness, not quarrelsome. The emotionally mature leader understands Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we just want to we want to stop and evaluate and say, is this this compassionate heart, this tender mercy, this kindness, this gentleness, is that something that that really needs to grow in my wardrobe? Number three, humility. Somebody said this, and it was well said. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So you're not humble if you say, oh, I'm a terrible person and everybody's better than me. That's stupid. And that's probably prideful. It's kind of a reverse pride. It's just I don't think of myself that much anymore. I'm thinking of other people. I'm not thinking about myself, how, my, how I line up according to a bunch of people. That's, that has some kind of pride component. I'm just not thinking of myself anymore. I'm thinking of other people. And that's a great definition of humility. And, of course, our best example of humility comes from Jesus, Philippians 2. In humility, this is Paul saying, To the Philippians, consider others better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death. So that's our model. Now imagine for a moment... You are in an elite group of people. You are especially chosen. You you are selected to be in this elite group. And you're in this elite group compared to everyone else in the world. Not just compared to everybody else in the city. Everyone else in the world. You're in the elite group. What would you expect the character of that group to be like? Well, I mean, from the world's vantage point, that elite group would be up looking down. But that's exactly what Paul is saying is who we are. We're chosen, we're set apart, and we're loved. But I want you to notice the great contrast in the characteristics of that group. It's never looking down, it's coming down. It's not being on top of people, it's being underneath people. The character qualities of the people who are in the select group are always underneath everyone else, trying to push them up, trying to serve them instead of trying to be served. Henry Nouwen says this, The society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go, the way to go is up. Making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record, that's what draws attention, that's what gives us fame. It's our face on the front page. The way of Jesus is radically different. It's not the way of upward mobility, but downward mobility. 
See, see, one of the most attractive Christian garments is humility. Probably the least attractive Christian uh, garment in a Christian's wardrobe that he shouldn't have is pride. There, you didn't do anything to get to where you are. You're just a privileged person, and so now you're a humble person. Fourth, meekness. Uh, when the Bible uses the word meekness, it doesn't mean weakness. That's a lot of times how we associate the word. But the Greek word actually has a word picture, and that's a, a broken stallion. So this wild stallion that was totally out of control, lots of power, but out of control, has been broken. And it's still very powerful, but he's got all of his power under control. So meekness is great power, but it's, it's under control. And again, I love how one commentary put it, meekness, just listen and evaluate for yourself. Meekness enables you to criticize someone's conduct so that it is received as help and not condemnation. Now think about that. You're a leader. You have to evaluate conduct and it's going to be critical. Do, do people receive it as help or do they receive it as condemnation? See, the meek person can, can offer it as help and it's not, I'm looking down and I'm condemning. Power under control is helpful. Power not under control is condemning. Finally, in this list, patience or sometimes long-suffering, which is a better word, great Great Greek word, long uh, uh, compound word, macrothumia. So macro is long and thumia, you might think of like thermometer or heat or thermostat, is passion or heat. So in other words, it takes a long time for your emotional thermometer to move upward. You're long suffering. You have a long fuse. And I hope you realize when Paul puts this in, in verse 13, he's talking about dealing with people inside the church. He's not talking about, hey, you're going to need a really long fuse for these people who are outside the church. He's saying, hey, guess what? You guys, you're going to need a little really long fuse for each other. You're going to have to bear with one another. You're going to have to forgive one another. So if you're here and you're thinking about joining Christ Community Church because we don't have to be very forgiving of each other, don't join Christ Community Church. Because you're going to have to bear with one another. You're going to have to have a long fuse with one another. You can't let your thermometer get up very high very quickly. There's an Irish saying that says this, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that is the purest glory. You have that in your image? Oh, I can't wait to meet him or her. This is some saying in history. And it's going to be wonderful. You always project out how wonderful it is. But to live with the saints, we, but to live below with the saints, we know, oh, that's another story. <laughs> See, I imagine it that everyone's going to like me and I'm going to like everybody in heaven. So it's perfect. But oh, down here. Oh, man, that's you should see the people down here. And that's what Paul's saying. You have to have a long fuse with the saints that are down here. You're called to live with these saints, not those saints today. The close is this last character trait, which is love. And it's 
sort of the, the, the thing that holds the, the garment together. Let's say you've put all these things on, but you need something to sort of tie it together. And it's like the belt. Or for women, I don't know what it is. But, uh, but for a man, it's like, okay, you got the belt. It's the thing that keeps everything up. You know, you got some good things on, but it needs to be, be all in the right spot. And so you, you put this belt of love around you and it, and it makes everything hold together. Uh, 28 years ago in, in July, I got married and I was thinking about this last night cause we had a great celebration of Michelle Poulos and Jordan getting married. It was so much fun. A lot of you were there and you saw, got to see my dance moves, which was really a great moment for many people. Um, but you know, when you're at a wedding, you're, you're thinking about when you got married at some point, it, it, it comes to mind and. When I got married 28 years ago, uh, Nancy had something inscribed inside my wedding ring. And it was a Bible verse, 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. So she's reminding me why she's going to love. What's the fuel that's going to help her love me the day we got married 28 years ago and today? It's the love of Christ. In other words, she's saying, Paul, my love for you isn't going to be fueled by the fact that love is on the list. Hey, when you get married, you're supposed to love the person. It's on the list. It's pretty high on the list. And so I got to do it. That's not what's going to be the fuel that keeps her loving me. Paul, my love for you isn't going to be fueled by my willpower. When I don't feel like loving you, by golly, I'm going to love you. That's not what's going to be my fuel. Paul, my love for you isn't going to be fueled by your love for me. I hope, I desire your love for me, but even when you're not loving to me, I'm going to love you back. Why? What's going to give her that fuel? The gospel. You see, because she knows she's first been loved by a great love. And that love keeps pouring into her life, even when I'm unlovable. Hard as that is to imagine. She can still love me. It's not based on her willpower. It's not based on a list. It's not based on me loving. It's based on Christ loving her. And she's applying the gospel to her life and then to her husband the rest of her life. Whatever the piece of this list that you need to work on, maybe all of them, my hope and prayer is that as you put these new garments in, they come with the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we're so thankful for this word because we would live differently. And many of us do live differently. We live according to the law. We live according to the list, even though we're Christians. And I pray that we would live according to the gospel. Certainly out of this list, um, there are things that um, you have brought to mind specifically today that people genuinely need to work on. And they need to first see that it's themselves. Secondly, they need to see you. And then they need to be transformed by the gospel. So I pray for your work to be done. In Jesus' name, amen.